A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war eine Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es ist getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Hi friends, David Beshevkin here. This very special episode of Jewish History Soundbites is sponsored by NCSY in honor of the yard site of Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan and the republication of the NCSY Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan Library. Rabbi Kaplan wrote a series of 10 books for NCSY about foundational topics of Emuna and Yiddishkeit, many of which have been out of print and all of which have been completely revised and edited. To purchase this new set or learn more about the NCSY Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan Library, Library, visit ncsy.org slash Kaplan. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, that was nice. That was really nice. How do you like that? No one says it better than my good friend David Bashevkin. It's really a schuss to have him on, at least a little bit. Now Jewish History Soundbites is officially on the map. We have David Bashevkin with us, um, at least for the dedication. Um, so we're going to talk about um, Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, a piece of modern Jewish history, primarily post-war, even though he was born pre-war and his upbringing was at that time. And it's in honor of his 39th uh, yard site. Um, so someone who I was always fascinated by growing up, I read some of his books and I was always fascinated by him as a person, his life, his accomplishments, and... Uh, so I'm very excited about the opportunity to give him and his impact some historical context. I'll start off with a story. I was once uh, at a Shabbos table of a, of a big Talmud Chacham in Yerushalayim, and I saw the Living Torah uh, and on his bookshelf, Rabbi Ari Kaplan's uh, fascinating translation and commentary to the Torah, and I and I commented. I said, "I didn't expect uh, to see to see this in your home." So he said, "He said I was I was flipping through it in the, in the bookstore, and when I saw that he writes that Amraphel, one of the four kings in in Parshas Lech Lecha, who Avram Avinu defeats in battle, he identifies him in a footnote footnote. Excuse me, of as Hammurabi. Uh, he said I was sold." I, I got it right there. I bought it on the spot. I said, you know, just that, that fascinating tidbit. It happens to be, and just for the record, most scholars dispute that identity today, which is a different topic, even though Hammurabi and his code is a fascinating story. 
But uh, most scholars dispute the fact that he's identified with Amraphel, but just the idea that he would bring that, that in his footnote, um, you know, is just it's just a funny, it's just, you know, kind of like into that brilliant world of Rabbi Arya Kaplan. In fact, when I was a, a student at the Mir Yeshiva many, many years ago as a bacher, and and uh, someone pointed out someone to me in, in the base medrash who was studying diligently and he said, you see that boy there? He just joined the yeshiva. He's like 20, 21 years old. Uh, he said, you know, this guy, this boy, he knows Shas. He knows the entire Shas. He's completed it several times. I said, what? He's 20, 21, a regular American kid. How is that possible? And they said, whoever was introducing him to me said, well, he's Rabari Kaplan's grandson. And I was like, oh, okay. That makes sense. It's like, you know, it became... Obvious, you know, someone like that. He was an utter genius, Rabbi Kaplan. So accomplished, like a, a rare light. Someone uh, who doesn't uh, show up very often on the Jewish scene. It's such a an accomplished person. Uh, and so such a broad spectrum. He was born in 1934 in the Bronx. Um, to a family, even though his name is Kaplan, but his origins were in Saloniki in Greece. Um, to a Italian Sephardic. Not sure if it's Italian or Sephardic, but they lived in Saloniki, so they were definitely part of the Sephardic community. I'm not sure how he even got the Kaplan name, but his origins were, for, were from the famous Recanti Rikan, family, originally from Italy. Rabbi Menachem Recanti was one of the Rishainim. Uh, in more modern times, was a prominent banking family, a uh, Jewish banking family in Saloniki in Greece, later on in Palestine and Israel, till today. In the state of Israel, they're one of the wealthiest families in Israel. The uh, uh, Rakantis they own Bank Discount and many other, many, many other. Bank Discount is like the earlier stuff that they started off with, but it's gone way beyond that. It's a very prominent and wealthy family in Israel. Either way, that's the family he origin his origins are from. But he grew up, grows up in the Bronx in the 1930s and 40s. Not really an observant family. It's kind of traditional, but not very observant at all. He's orphaned of his mother at the age 13. He's sent to a foster home. He attended public school in the Bronx until he was actually expelled for behavioral issues, it seems. Uh, then he was like a Bronx uh, street kid. Uh, but since they were somewhat traditional, he did recite Kaddish in his mother's memory. Uh, at that time, he did not go by Arya. He went by Leonard or Len or Lenny. Um, eventually, he was brought closer to Jewish observance by acquaintances in the neighborhood. And by age 15, he was enrolled in Yeshiva Taravadas, which was still in Williamsburg in those days. Uh, three years later there, he was chosen by Reb Simcha Wasserman and a few other, together with a few other of his colleagues in Taravadas, including Reb Nissen Walpen, um, to found the R.L. Hanan Yeshiva in Los Angeles. Uh, so an early mentor of Rabbi Kaplan in New York, uh, I don't know if it was at this point or at a later point, I wasn't able to pinpoint exactly what year he came to know him, it could be it was later on in life, was a fascinating personality named Rabbi Aryeh Rosenfeld. Rabbi Aryeh Rosenfeld was born in Poland to a prominent uh, family of Breslov Hasidim. In the early uh, 1920s, he was still a child, like two or three years old, a toddler rather, uh, his family immigrated to the United States, and he settled in Brownsville. He went to Chaim Berlin, Taravadas. He was also close with the Bavram Yafin of Beis Yosef Navardik. But he was, of course, close with the Breslov community, both uh, in, at that point, it was none, none left in Europe and in Israel. Um, 
He, uh, there wasn't much to speak of in the United States of Breslov either. Uh, uh, he taught, uh, this Rutsiari Rosenfeld taught bar mitzvah lessons in the afternoons. That's how he made a living. One of his early students, in, in fact, was Mayor Kahana. Uh, but he became a one-man Kirov organization in the 1950s. He reached out to families in Brooklyn and inspired the youth to come closer to, to Jewish observance. Also, even with the Syrian Jewish community in, 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 in Flatbush at that time, he would teach uh, halacha to the Syrian community according to their own tradition. I guess we would refer to it as halacha in that context. And he would even read the Torah for them in, in their accent, according to their accent. Uh, but he fundraised for Breslau families and institutions in Israel. It was primarily his fundraising which built the well-known Breslau yeshiva in Meish Arm. Uh, he was pretty much the first person to bring the ideas of Breslov to the American Jewish scene, introducing hundreds of youth to the Torah of Reb Nachman of Breslov. So how do we, how does Reb Rosenfeld relate to our story of Reb Kaplan? So he he uh, is an early mentor of Reb Kaplan, and they were very close, and he taps him to translate and edit the first translations of of Reb Nachman of Breslov's Shivchei Haran and Sichai Saran, and he publishes it in English under the title Reb Nachman's Wisdom, also Reb Nachman's Tikkun, uh, and then another book about Reb Nachman's life, Until the Mashiach, the life of Reb Nachman. So Ritzirai Rosenfeld uh, is, 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 brings him into the world of Hasidus and the world of Jewish mysticism, which becomes one of the hallmarks of Reb Arie Kaplan. Once we're on the subject of Reb Tzvi Rosenfeld, just one last tidbit, interestingly enough, is that he's the one who organizes the first group from the United States to go to Uman. It's under the Soviets. He brings an American group there in 1963. This is the beginning of the Khrushchev thaw after the Stalin era. Um, so he subsequently went more several times. But I digress. Let's get back to Reb Kaplan. We're jumping ahead of our story. We're back in when he's still a teenager in his early 20s. Uh, shortly after his stint in, in, in Los Angeles, he does something highly unusual for the early 1950s. As far as I know, there are only a handful of American yeshiva students who did this in the early 1950s. He went to Israel to study in yeshiva. He went to the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Almost no Americans did that at the time. It was extremely rare. Um, and he studied there for the rabbinate. He received smicha from the chief rabbi of the state of Israel, Rabbi Yisrael Isaac Halevi Herzog, and also from his Rosh Hashivah at the Mirror, Blaise Yodel Finkel. He then returns to the United States, and he becomes a teacher. He also pursued his own education at the University of Louisville out in, in, in Kentucky, and then the University of Maryland, and he majored and then obtained a master's in physics. He became a rising star as a physicist. He was even mentioned in the who's who of physics at the time. In 1965, he decided to switch career paths, and he enters the rabbinate, obtaining his first pulpit position in Mason City, Iowa. Uh, and he had four short pulpit positions in the span of seven years. He went jumping from place to place. Uh, Mason City, Iowa was followed by short stints in three conservative synagogues, interestingly enough. And he's very highly orthodox at this point, and he officiated as a rabbi in these several different uh, uh, conservative synagogues in Blountville, Tennessee, in Dover, New Jersey, and in Albany, back in New York. Uh, so, in general, there's an interesting phenomenon of, of Orthodox rabbis serving in conservative synagogues, which in the 1960s was actually much more common than we'd assume. There are quite a few rabbis like that, but that's a different story. While in the last, uh, the latter position in Albany, he also served as the head of the local JCC and was affiliated with the Hill on the campus of the University of Albany. 
1971, he moves back to New York City. He settles this time in Brooklyn, where he'd remain for the rest of his short life. He was married at this point. He had nine children eventually. Um, a nice, large uh, family, many grandchildren by now today, great-grandchildren, um, which he, unfortunately, in his short life, did not merit to, to see, but to today it's quite, quite, quite uh, significant. While he was in Brooklyn, he served in many positions. He rose as a major national player in the emerging Kirov outreach movement uh, to less affiliated Jews in many capacities. Among them was as a chaplain in Hunter College. He was also the editor of Intercom, the publication of Orthodox Jewish scientists. He was also the editor of the OU publication, Jewish Life, and several other positions that he had, smaller and another odd position I found that he held was as the rabbinical counselor to the Broadway rendition of Isaac Beshevis Singer's uh, Yentl. This was you know, in theater, in, in Broadway. It was also off-Broadway, I think, but it had a nice run on Broadway itself. And uh, this is, this is the, 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 the theater edition, not the later Barbara Streisand film. Uh, she probably did not need rabbinical counseling, so he wasn't hired for that. But for Broadway, he was the director, Robert Zangville Kalfin, Jewish, of course, met uh, Rabari Kaplan on the Staten Island Ferry, and they got to talking. So to make the production of Yentl more authentic, he brought him to the set where he counseled the actors and actresses in mannerisms, speech, and customs of Eastern European Jews. Um, so, you know, there he has that affiliation. The play was nominated for a Tony, but it did not win, which would have been funny if Rabari Kaplan could have added a Tony to his already impressive resume. But his primary affiliation at these times was not on Broadway. It was through uh, his, his affiliation with NCSY. He was the director of publishing at NCSY. He spoke at every NCSY national convention. He was a very popular speaker in general. He was sought out by many organizations, many places to speak. He spoke regularly at NCSY's New York branch meetings. He was the spiritual advisor of NCSY's Brooklyn branch. And through this and his writings, which is I'm going to get to in a minute, the primary story of Rabari Kaplan is his writings, but through his speaking and his directorship in the Kirov world, he became a driving force in the emerging Kirov outreach movement. And he saw reaching um, unaffiliated, uh, especially the youth, teenagers, young men and women, as essential for the future of the Jewish community. Uh, so Rabbi Kaplan was discovered by the director of NCSY, Rabbi Pinchas Stolper. And Rabbi Stolper himself recorded how and when he discovered him. So I'm going to quote from what he himself wrote about his discovery of Rabari Kaplan. He writes, I first encountered this extraordinary individual, and by chance I spotted his article on immortality in the soul in Intercom, the journal of the Association of Orthodox Jewish Scientists, and was taken by his unusual ability to explain a difficult topic, one usually reserved for advanced scholars, a topic almost untouched previously in English, with such simplicity that it could be understood by any intelligent reader. It was clear to me that his special talent could fill a significant void in English Judaica. I always counted as one of my greatest chusim to have had the privilege of discovering Rabbi Kaplan. And once we met, we became lifelong friends. When I invited Rabbi Kaplan to write on the concept of tefillin for the Orthodox Union's National Conference of Synagogue Youth, NCSY, he completed the 96-page manuscript of God, Man, and Tefillin with sources and footnotes from the Talmud, Medrash, and Zohar in less than two weeks. The book, masterful and comprehensive, inspiring yet simple, set a pattern which was to characterize all of his succeeding works. Uh, so that's, that's Rabbi Stolper on his discovery of Rabbi Kaplan. At the same time, uh, Rabbi Kaplan remains a warm, approachable, down-to-earth individual. 
this brilliant genius engaged in ever more projects and busy as, you know, really busy, emerging as a leading Jewish scholar in just about every subject. He somehow also has time for anyone who approaches to discuss anything on their mind. He and his wife raised their family in a warm and loving environment, a house of hospitality. There's always guests at the Shabbos table. He's a very modest man, very warm, sensitive to others, very unassuming. Uh, so, but by, by, by far, his biggest impact, and it remains his greatest legacy today, is his incredible literary output. So much and so scholarly and wide scope with a, like I said, a dazzling brilliance and depth that it's simply mind-boggling. Um, I always knew that it was mind-boggling, and it just boggled my mind again when I was preparing this episode, just trying to put down in my notes the different books that he managed to put together all in such a short time. Remember, he passes away at the age of 48, and all of his writings were done in the last decade or so of his life. During that time, he had such a prodigious output that it's almost beyond belief. He did those Breslov Nachman uh, uh, works I mentioned earlier. He wrote also quite a few other works on Hasidic thought, even Hasidic history, which I, I've used. Um, he had a decisive impact in the field of Kabbalah. He was very into Jewish mysticism, Jewish meditation, um, even practiced it himself. He authored and translated several important works on Jewish mysticism and meditation, including the early works on Jewish mysticism of Sefer Yitzira, Sefer Habahir, as well as the Derech Hashem of the Ramchal. He had this amazing knack for explaining deep and esoteric concepts in English in a clear, relatable, and understandable fashion, such that he was able to make ideas and concepts accessible to a wider audience for the first time. He wrote another book, uh, in Hebrew, a Hebrew Kabbalistic work about Simsum and similar topics, uh, amazing uh, amount of in, in the world of Kabbalah. He also wrote two, a two-volume book of fundamentals of Jewish thought, like Jewish philosophy, essentially, entitled The Handbook of Jewish Thought, a chapter that he wrote on creation, including his take on evolution, was left out by the publishers, but if you're really curious, it is available online, so you can see that chapter as well. One of his earliest publications was for Young Israel, Five booklets uh, for young Israel, belief in God, free will, uh, the Jew, love and the commandments, the structure of Jewish law. He wrote a lot about combating missionaries and their beliefs, and it's compiled in The Real Messiah. And then primarily for Kirov outreach purposes, he was commissioned by NCSY to author various works which were relevant to an array of practical Jewish topics and, observ and observances, which he explored the practical details of the observance, as well as infusing it with several layers of depth and meaning. These are his ultimate mastery works, as he makes it clear, relevant, and accessible, while he's citing the full gamut of rabbinic literature, mystical, across the spectrum, often incorporating scientific aspects as well, in perfect harmony, and all in very easy, simple language. And it's an amazing resource of footnotes. He wrote about tefillin, God, man, and tefillin, love means reaching out, Maimonides' principles, the fundamentals of Jewish faith, the waters of Eden, which is the mystery of the mikvah, Jerusalem, eye of the universe, which is in a whole series of very on tzitzis, on, 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 on all kinds of mitzvahs and, 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 and beliefs, very popular and influential booklets on aspects of Jewish uh, philosophy and Jewish observance, halacha, which span the entire spectrum of, uh, of Jewish thought and, and religious practice. And it was published by the OUNCSY. Later on, it was compiled as an anthology, and Art Scroll republished it. A major project of his later years, another fascinating project, unrelated to everything else, was his translation of the Me'am Loyes, written by Rabbi Yaakov Kuli, one of the great uh, Achreinim in, in, 
in uh, in Turkey, um, and he, it was written in Ladino in the in the vernacular of of much of the uh, much of Sephardic Jewry, and especially in the Ottoman Empire. Um, and he translates it from Ladino into English. He taught himself Ladino in order to translate it into English. So again, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just not just genius. It's his his work ethic and, and the amount of amount of time he was able to invest in these things. He even wrote a couple of essays and articles explaining what he's doing with the Ma'amlais, why he's doing it. He gives a historical background of Rabbi Yaakov Kuli, the author of the Ma'amlais, and the original writing and publishing and how it was received in the Sephardic communities across the empire. And it's just, it's, it's a fascinating essays. I, I used it for historical reasons. I never actually learned the Ma'amlais. Uh, but then he embarks on this incredible project. He taught himself Ladino and he goes on to translate and edit volume after volume of the Mayam Leis. Others continued the project, but he did a significant amount of the volumes himself in his in in in, in those few years. Uh, eventually, the set was tens of uh, of volumes. Um, he also wrote, like I mentioned at the beginning, the Living Torah um, on the Torah itself on the Chamisha Chumshe Torah. Again, it's a scholarly work where he references everything in the world in the footnotes and in the index on history, on nature, on science, on flowers and plants mentioned in the Torah, on animals. And, and in history, and, and everything comes together in his world. In one th- synthesis, he incorporates every possible commentary from Chazal and the Rishonim and Achreinim from all time periods and all types. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, it's it's and it's a, and it's and it's great. It's a, a fascinating work. He wrote a um, a book about uh, called "The Fewer God" about Hashgacha and other godly type of topics, many others as well, I'm not even going through all of them. Many of these, like I said, were commissioned by NCSY in the 1970s. He also wrote many articles and essays published by various other publications, uh, Very quite often in the Jewish Observer of the Agudas uh, Yisrael of America, uh, some of which were collected into books published by Art Scroll. Some of those essays are about, uh, you know, just fun topics, about his hobby of collecting old Sfarim. About uh, I think I mentioned this in the Muncie episode about how a get was written for the first time in Muncie about like I said the history of the Mayamlays about Kiev about missionaries about other interesting topics he happened to have been very knowledgeable in Jewish history which is another reason why I liked him and he would apply his physics background to research and writing concise systematic detail oriented into he himself said I quote I use my physics background to analyze and systemize data very much as a physicist would deal with physical reality, and he eventually produced close to 50 books. He was very creative. He saw harmony between science and Torah, and he was not afraid to propose bold explanations, new commentary, analysis, always anchoring them in sources and chazal and classic traditional Jewish sources. And tragically and untimely and quite suddenly, uh, he had a, his passed away by a heart attack in 1983 when he was only 48 years old, and he was buried in Harazesim, and since then his words have continued to be published. Uh, it's few, if any, have had a greater a- impact on the on the the Teshuva movement, uh, the the Kirov movement. Uh, um, he he didn't open a yeshiva, but he was directly and personal personally, but he directly and personally impacted an almost unfathomable amount uh, number of uh, of Jews, primarily through NCSY, but also. Uh, through his writing, his prolific writing, uh, uh, Mr. Joe Tenenbaum, the famed 
philanthropist was the one who sponsored his original books, and then the Tannerbaum Foundation continued to sponsor the republishing uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Rabbi uh, Aryeh Kaplan's books. Now, there's another republishing, NCSY is involved in this new project to reissue the entire Kaplan Library with new introductions, redesigned covers, updated content, so a new intra- generation can be introduced to the majesty of Jewish ideas and uh, of, of Rabbi Kaplan, together with Art Scroll. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's uh, a little bit of the history all brought down all the way to the contemporary. So he had a fascinating life, even though it was tragically very short, and it goes... I, you know, it's what I what I found the most interesting just looking back is this growing up in the pre-war New York City immigrant world of the Bronx, coming from this Saloniki Greek Jewish family to becoming the and then going through Mir Yeshiva of the 1950s, and then to come with that to be this you know take that brilliance and use it to bring another generation closer to. Uh, Jewish observance is just a fascinating life story, which was uh, cut short at that time. So, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. I will post the links to this to this uh, Rabbi Kaplan uh, books and publishing and NCSY stuff, so that you can enjoy uh, and partake in it as well. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.